Okay, good morning, everyone. Exciting day. We had a baptism. Baptismal liturgy went long. I was excited to be back in the sanctuary, so my preaching might have gone a little long. I don't know. We'll find out next service. <laughs> but what a great and glorious day. So we're running a little late today. I uh, hope those online will forgive us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We are in chapter 7 of Revelation. If you remember, uh, just to bring ourselves up to speed quickly, We are in the middle of the opening of the seven seals, the first set of seven. We have gone through uh, the six seals. The sixth seal, when it was open, is in many ways a picture of the end of the earth, creation unraveling. In fact, in this first set of seven, the seals being opened, it really does serve as the end. If you remember, when we look at the seals, we are looking at the time from Christ's ascension to Christ's second coming. And so uh, that's the time period. The sixth seal represents the end of that time period. Uh, And then the other other, uh, sets of seven, the seven trumpets we're about to go into, and then the seven uh, bowls of incense or bowls of fire from the altar of incense, these all cover that same period of time. So what's going on here in chapter 7 is an interlude. After, after the six seals have been opened and basically the way it goes with the world, the four horsemen, the martyrs crying out because of all of the martyrdom going on, and then the unraveling of creation itself, we have this beautiful, beautiful interlude of, okay, what does the church look like during this period? What does the church look like? And you have, like a coin has two sides, you have two sides of the church. So chapter 7... 1 through 8 is what the church looks like on earth. That's why it's uh, 144,000 Jewish virgin males all lined up in battle array. The church on earth looks from a heavenly vantage point to be perfectly pure, perfectly ordered. Everything beautiful and right. In the 12 tribes set forth, you can see uh, that the two tribes most associated with idolatry, Dan and Ephraim, they're missing. They've been replaced with Levi and Joseph. So everything is set right, and this is the church militant. This is the church on earth militant. Um, You can tell that this 144,000 is an idealized symbolic number. It never increases or decreases. The church is always exactly as God intends, exactly what God wants it to be. When we flip the coin and look at the other side, then we're looking at the church in heaven. And that's verses 9 through 17. We got a good way into this section last week before we had to stop. But if you remember, John then looks and he sees a great multitude that no one can number, They're dressed in the white robes of of baptism of Christ's righteousness, and we're later told that they make their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. The reason why these peoples are allowed to stand before the throne of God 
is precisely because of the blood of the Lamb. So these are sinners now become saints. In their hands is a palm branch. That's symbolic of victory. That was given as the symbol of victory. So they're victorious. These are the ones who have conquered. You remember that anthem through the, the seven epistles to the churches, the sevenfold epistle to the church. That anthem, to the one who conquers, I will give. To the one who conquers, I will give. These are they who have conquered. They join the heavenly liturgy, and they are described as continually coming out of this world, coming out of the great tribulation, and joining in the heavenly liturgy. You can see once more in Revelation, we've seen it before, the sevenfold praise of God, the blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. It is such a magnificent and glorious picture, and yet John, who is seeing it, doesn't quite understand what's going on, or if he does, he's simply too humble to assert and say. So one of the elders, one of the 24 elders that we mentioned before, some think they're angelic beings, Brighton in his commentary um, thinks that these are representatives of the, of the human church, um, 12, tri 12 Old Testament tribes, 12 New Testament apostles. Either way, this elder comes and gives John the pop quiz. Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? And John says, sir, you know. Good answer. That's verse 14. Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now that's a present participle, so continually emerging. I mean, the idea is as people are, this is just to put it very, very just bluntly, as people are dying, and leaving this world and leaving the Great Tribulation, there is a non-stop parade up as this uh, great crowd that no one can number increases and increases and increases. It's one of the most glorious uh, funeral texts we can have, probably one of the clearest glimpses. In fact, I would go so far as to say the clearest glimpse we have of what it is to die and to go before the throne of God worship him day or night, and, and we'll hear all the rest that happens. Now, as I pointed out last week, of course, you have, a, you have past, present, and future elements of this vision. Fine, be that as it may. Today, we'll tend to focus more on the present, the ongoing present tense. So these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We talked about the Great Tribulation. And here, uh, whereas elsewhere in Revelation, you could make the case that the Great Tribulation is, is limited to what happens precisely at the very end of the end times, here the Great Tribulation is really the existential crisis that every Christian goes through. Your life is the Great Tribulation. Um, and if you want to put that maybe more, um, you, know, you, you want to tighten that up a little, you might say precisely your death, the end of your life here on earth is your own personal great tribulation. We know that that is, uh, as, we, as we grow closer to death, that is precisely where the devil attacks us the most, uh, bringing to mind our sins, uh, trying to get us to renounce the faith on the basis of our own hypocrisy, trying to cause us perversely to boast in a kind of self-righteousness or a kind of accomplishment whereby God is certain to take us on account of our merits. These are the common attacks of the devil. And so it rightly said that existentially each one of us goes through a great tribulation as we approach the end. 
How do we escape the Great Tribulation? How do we escape these satanic attacks? These are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Not by our merits, but by Christ's blood. Not by our good deeds, but by Christ's blood. We do have merits. We do have good deeds. These given to us by the Holy Spirit, empowered in and through us by Him, because we are indeed a new creation. But these aren't our standing before the throne of God. Our standing before the throne of God is the blood of Jesus alone. John continues, verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. That serve him is the latroio. It's the liturgy word, liturgia, where we get liturgy. So this isn't, um, I mean, this is a, the picture here is divine service. The beatific vision. The heaven of heaven is to see God, and once one sees God, you realize what your soul was made for. It is, uh, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but it is profoundly telling in an unflattering way when people perceive the ultimate telos and end of their lives, their beings, their everlasting souls as being something like playing golf on a golf course in heaven or bodyboarding on the perfect waves in heaven or, or some asinine thing like this, right? Uh, that is not the, the telos. That is not the culmination of the human soul. We were made for God, we are not at rest until we see God. We are not fulfilled. We are not receiving our full purpose and capacity and identity until our eyes are set on Almighty God and we see Him as He is. We know Him even as He knows us. That's the essence of eternal life. Jesus prays this in earshot of His disciples in His high priestly prayer on the night He's betrayed, the same day He goes to the cross in Jewish reckoning. He, he prays, uh, Father, to know you and the one whom you sent, this is eternal life. It's also where we can say that we have eternal life now because we know the Father and the Son. But to see the Father and the Son, that is to receive the beatific vision, the final fulfillment of our souls. It's the heaven of heaven. So this is, uh, this is what it means to be before the throne of God and to serve him day and night. We see the reference to time in his temple, which in no uncertain terms is Christ. Christ is the temple of God. And so that's what's, you know, because again, if you kind of, if you think about the structure and the imagery used heretofore in, uh, in Revelation, there's no mention of a temple. There's mention of a throne. There's mention of a lamb. There's mention of the spirit in the sevenfold uh, candelabra or torches. There's no mention of a temple. A temple is rightly and best understood as being Christ himself, whether it's something that we can see or perceive. Uh, that question aside, uh, the identity of the dwelling place of God with man is most explicitly in the New Testament, Christ. John goes on, or rather, well, the elder, right, um, to John, John to us. And he who sits on the throne, who is that? Which person of the Trinity? The Father. The Father. And he who sits on the throne will shelter us with his presence. In the language of the Psalms, he will shadow us uh, under his wings, under his pinions. 
He will keep us from all harm and danger. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. So the bodily, you know, the afflictions that have come upon us on account of the curse, these are removed. But more deeply, remember, the, remember um, that beatitude in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For righteousness. That's the true hunger and thirst all of us have is we want, we want the righteousness of Christ, no doubt about it, and the forgiveness of sins. But we want that righteousness that belongs to Christ to be given to us also so that we are one with him and have an embodied righteousness. So they shall hunger and thirst, um, neither hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Again, the, the problems with the curse are removed. And here too, it goes back to that idea of being sheltered with the presence of the one who sits upon the throne. And there's then the first person, the one who sits upon the throne, and here in verse 17, the second person, our Lord Jesus. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne. And that's such beautiful language. There is one upon the throne and there's a Lamb in the midst of the throne. He's on the throne and not on the throne. He's true God and true man. He's the second person. He's distinct and yet one. Uh, to see the Lamb is to see the one in the midst of the throne. It's a beautifully poetic visual way of putting this. So the Lamb in the midst of the throne, then this great and fantastic irony will be their shepherd. So you, just as you don't wash robes white in blood, what kind of Lamb is also a shepherd? Beautiful, delightful mystery and uh, just wonder and awe being expressed in these verses at the, at the glory and mystery of God. So the Lamb who is the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God himself puts forward, for the propitiation of the world. You can see that the cross is entirely God's action, requires no participation on the part of man. The most underemphasized words to our great poverty and shame in the, in the language of behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world are these two words, of God. God is putting forth his Lamb. God is sacrificing his lamb for us. We are passive. We are passive in this. This is something that God is doing and then he is going to declare to us that it is done. And that is precisely the proclamation of the gospel. Now, as the lamb of God who takes away our sins, Christ then is wonderfully our shepherd. Ego I me, I am that I am, the divine name. Ego I me, the good shepherd. So here we see the lamb as the shepherd. And of course, if you Latinize that language, it's pastor. And indeed, you remember that from 1 Peter, that that's a, the exact translation, the pastor and bishop of our souls. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the pastor and bishop of our souls, the shepherd and uh, overseer. And he will guide them to springs of living water. We're going to see those springs of living water at the end of Revelation. That's the, that's the climax when the city comes down, the new heavens and the new earth, and the springs of living water come forth. Of course, in Jesus' ministry, he, he repeatedly talks about living water flowing from him and even flowing into us and through us. Um, and then how can we forget, too, that this language comes from Psalm 23, 
So the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And here's the, here's the still waters, which again, by way of paradox, are living, not only in the sense that they're moving, but in the sense that they give life. And so the still waters are living waters. There's a, there's a paradox the same way you have a lamb who is a shepherd or robes washed white in blood. And that's such a beautiful, beautiful phrase and a, a, a line of scripture that many years ago started opening my eyes to something that I've only really begun to see. And that is, uh, I, think, I think because of our time in which the, the charismatic renewal in the, 19, in, in the late 60s and the 1970s, even still being dealt with to a degree in the LCMS in the 80s, uh, really put a bad taste in everyone's mouth in regard to uh, the concept of healing. Uh, I, won't, I won't speak of some of the bad things that happened at this particular church in regard to the Pentecostalism and attempts at healing and that kind of thing, but this was a major problem, and it really put a bad taste in everyone's mouth, and as is often the case when there's one error, we all leap the opposite way and potentially into the opposite error. And we can throw the baby out with the bathwater if we think of healing, and, and particularly, only the, particularly only the physical kind of healing. Because there is this broad and deep paradigm in Scripture of the healing of our souls. You know, body and mind aren't excluded, but the healing of our souls, that by our own sins, we wound ourselves. By the sins that others commit against us, we are wounded in our souls. And we need to have our souls healed. And increasingly, that's really the point of the divine service. That's really the point of Jesus risen from the dead in our midst on Sunday mornings. The forgiveness of sins is the fountainhead of this healing. And the forgiveness of sins flows through this healing. But it's not identical to this healing. There's more to it than that. In the language of Scripture, he's creating us a clean heart. He's renewing in us a right spirit. And there's ways in which this is a process. There's ways in which it is a process by which our shepherd is gently leading and guiding and healing us so that things we weren't ready to acknowledge were sins, we're now ready. And we acknowledge them as sins, but we're powerless against them, and then we come to hate them. And then sometime after we come to hate them, we come to actually be strengthened by Christ to resist them and cease from them. And then and only then do we see how mucked up our whole perception was, how mucked up our whole spiritual lives were. The church fathers talk about this in tons of places, and it's a paradigm that's largely been lost to us in the modern church. It's really where the language of soul cure or seelsorge in German for uh, the pastor as one who heals, that's really, that's really the paradigm in which this theology needs to operate. But like I said, one of the breakthroughs for me was this language here, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the first place, because it was quite jarring to my oversimplistic idea that as soon as we die, we're in heaven, and everything's magical. Everything's, everything's awesome, as uh, they say at Legoland in all my kids' uh, movies. Everything is awesome. Now I've got the song going through my head. But 
But one of the things that that does, <laughs> one of I shared my wealth maybe. One of the uh, one of the things that that does is it actually it cheapens everything. It cheapens everything intolerably so, and it renders it renders this life and our purpose just meaningless. Because if your sins are, are, are no, are, have done no harm to you, and if you have nothing of which to be healed, if the sins of others have done no harm to you and you have nothing of which to be healed, in the first place, you're deceiving yourself. But in the second place, if that were true, what does that mean for this life? Sin or don't sin, it doesn't matter. There's no harm in it. Be sinned against all you want. It doesn't matter. You're supposed to get over it. You're supposed to forgive everyone, remember? Uh, it, it really ruins, takes into no account what it actually means to be human. What it actually means that our, that our actions uh, have deep consequences. So simply going to heaven isn't getting, like dying and going to heaven isn't getting a lobotomy of all the bad things that happened. How would that even work? Many of us would have to forget our entire lives, our entire identities. How does that work? The idea that upon going to heaven, God wipes every tear from their eyes. That, you know, again, I, I'm not going to overplay this and turn this into a dogmatic category, but that speaks to a change. That speaks to the fact that in heaven there are tears. I mean, in the first place, that's shocking. Most Christians wouldn't believe that. But look, you're in heaven and he's wiping away every tear. What's, but what's actually being spoken here is that there's a healing taking place. There's a righting of wrongs taking place. And, and it's a beautiful picture. It's really the antithesis of the medieval purgatory idea where all of this is burnt out of you by demons tormenting you forever and uh, you know, people on earth are, are praying just to get you out of there. Uh, no, no. The idea, that, the idea that as you pass through death, all the dross is burned away and the old Adam dies, yes. The idea that when you get to heaven, the good shepherd, the pastor and bishop of your souls will come to you and hear your words, and heal your heart, and wipe away your tears? Yeah, I can get on board with that. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Okay, so whether you follow me there or not, if you prefer it more shallow, that's just fine. I, and I don't mean that pejoratively, but the idea that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, uh, it's, it's a beautiful line of Scripture, uh, no matter your take on that one. Okay, so that gives us the other half of the church, the church in heaven. Now, what you'll notice is that's not the final picture. That's not the final picture. That, this is the church prior to Christ's second coming. This is the church prior to the resurrection of our bodies and the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. So, uh, important to keep in mind... In this fallen world, while all the disasters are, fall, are, are, are befalling the earth, where God's judgment is falling upon man for his wickedness and the end is coming, what does the church look like? Church militant on earth looks perfect. Cleansed, pure, in battle array, everything is going exactly according to plan. We say, how on earth could that be possible? All I see is division and chaos and losses. Well, it's one of the reasons why in the church, I mean, in the church service, we confess the creed. I believe in the Holy Christian Church, not I see the Holy Christian Church. I believe in it. This is something that God says is the case that I don't see with my eyes, but I believe in it. Well, what's that like? Just about everything else in the Christian faith, <laughs> where we simply have to take God at his, at his word. 
All right, and then what does the church look like when people die and go to the other side of the sanctuary, as it were? Well, we glimpse it here. It's they're, they're safe, they're healed, they're sheltered, they're surrounded, not, not only by the comforts of God and, and the Lamb in the midst of the throne, but by the whole company of saints and angels. We, we sometimes, Satan assaults us when, when people we love die. I think this is, I haven't lost a child, but I think this would be especially true if you've lost a child. Satan assaults us with all kinds of just wretched, terrible ideas uh, about our child being lonely or on their own or something like this. Nothing could be further from the truth. They are safer in heaven than they are here with us. We have all our prayers and all our efforts are, are met and answered by God in his taking uh, our, our little ones or our loved ones out of this great tribulation, out of this veil of tears, and bringing them to his everlasting light and blessedness. And, and if they're upset with, by anything, guess who's there to wipe every tear away from their eyes? And, and guess who surrounds them? First of all, a heavenly father, better than any earthly parents. And not only a heavenly father, but countless fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters the entire Christian church and saints of every kind. It is pure blessing and pure peace. We mourn because we love, and when we lose those we love, our mourning takes the, our love takes the shape of mourning. Our love takes the shape of mourning. The idea, the idea that's popular in psychology, or at least comes in and out of vogue, that you suddenly, you know, you finally, you go through these stages and you finally get over it. That's a lie. You don't ever get over it because you don't ever get, get over your love for that person who has departed. Um, you don't ever get over it. Your love for them changes the shape of mourning. And so that's good. But with that mourning, with those tears, we rejoice in the truth of what God has done for them. And we shake ourselves from time to time with our mourning and say, Why are you downcast within me, O my soul? My loved one is with the Lord Jesus who wipes every tear from their eyes. My loved one is surrounded by angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. And in a few minutes, I'll be there too. They won't even notice that I wasn't there. <laughs> Just beautiful comfort. Beautiful comfort. Okay, so this is, uh, this is the interlude. Now we get to the seventh seal, the end of the first set of seven. And as you're going to see, this is, I think this is really beautiful beautiful artistry in terms of writing and organization and, and just the visual aspect. Let's turn to chapter 8 and see this. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. This is weird and delightful and glorious. About a half an hour. <laughs> I mean, first of all, there's time. Uh, and it's strange what have we seen from heaven so far? Heaven is a, is a wild, thronging, holy place. And with booming angelic voices and this, this great divine service going on and antiphon and choirs and worship and God speaking and people, you know, beings prostrating themselves. I mean, it is a wild ruckus and suddenly everything goes quiet. Everything goes quiet. Now, in the intertestamental literature, 
you can find references. Um, and, and so this is, again, this is outside of the scriptures, so take that as you will. Uh, to the concept of silence before creation. So there's, there's this tradition and belief that there was silence in heaven before God spoke and everything came to be. And so the thought here is that there is a silence in recognition and acknowledgement that the new creation is coming. Uh, so what, what you might tie that into is that there is a silence because what's being depicted here is the end of the, of the last days that began with Christ coming and ascending into heaven and the, the last days are going on right up until now and then when Christ returns, that's the end. But that's also the dawn of the new creation. So some people take this silence to be the fact that Christ is revealed and is so glorious as he is about to return to earth that all the glorious ones of heaven are in stunned silence and awe. Nobody can say anything. And it's, the, and it's particularly his advent, his parousia, his second coming then, that inaugurates the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So these things are all hinted at here, and these are, you know, speculations. Uh, nobody, nobody other, other than that, nobody is exactly sure what to do with this silence in heaven for about a half hour other than say, it happened. John continues, then I saw the, there's a definite article there, and that is really intriguing. The seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So again, not to lose the forest for the trees, but as the final seal is opened and as the scroll is about to be unrolled, right? This is the final seal of the scroll and that scroll contains God's, uh, God's plan of salvation for the whole world. The final seal doesn't take us down to earth, and we're not seeing any disaster here. As soon as it's opened, we're seeing the seven angels being handed seven trumpets. This is the beauty, because I think artistically, because the seventh seal opens, and it leads into the next sevenfold vision. That's what's going on here. So there's this kind of beauty, if you can, like, if you have an abstract brain, I guess, like I do, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure I say I see it, but it's just this great, beautiful structure of, you know, right when you think it's come to an end, nope, loops back into a different vision, a brand new vision of the same period over again with, this, with these seven trumpets and these seven angels blowing the trumpets. Okay, who are the seven angels? That's the question. If John had, ri- if John had written seven angels we just assume, okay, seven angels. The seven angels is a really fascinating question. Two different options. The majority option is this. In extra-canonical literature, outside of what's recognized as scripture, John is writing, of course, in the late first century. These texts coming uh, in the second century B.C., and earlier. So you're talking a few hundred years before. Um, Enoch, first Enoch is an example. And in first Enoch, it talks about the angels of the presence, and it even names these angels. Oh, let me see if I can find their names quick. 
just in case you want to know. This, by the way, um, when you see like uh, um, some Roman Catholic and some Eastern Orthodox depictions of angels, and they've got names other than uh, Gabriel or Michael, because in scripture, the canonical scriptures, those are the only two angels named, aside from him of whom we do not speak, Lucifer, who fell and became Satan. Those are the three names of angels we have in the canonical scriptures. But in, in um, traditions like Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy, uh, they take, there's much more respect for First Enoch and what's written there. And that due largely to some of the early church fathers taking it very seriously, particularly um, Irenaeus. Irenaeus in, um, takes, takes first Enoch to be canonical, to be equal to scripture. Um, but anyway, in first Enoch, he has a, he has a vision himself. And uh, yeah, there it is. And in this vision, he gives seven uh, angelic names. And so what I'm trying to say is, and this is why most scholars and commentators take the seven angels to be these seven, is because this is the, this is the milieu. This is what people are thinking and discussing, and you know, that's what's going on in theology at this time. So when John writes the seven angels, they think, ah, this has to be a reference to these seven beings. All right, their names are, pardon me for my pronunciation, Suruel, there's one, Raphael, now, that's probably the next best known. I th- and in fact, I think, yeah, he shows up in Tobit. That's one of the apocryphal books. Uh, we studied Tobit here a number of years ago. Raphael comes up. So, uh, Raguel, there's the third. Michael, okay, we know the archangel Michael. Uh, Sarakael, and Gabriel. And then... Um, the other one usually given is Uriel. Uriel. Okay, those are the seven. Um, there are some texts that insert a different name, and I kind of like this one since given my first name, Jeremiel. <laughs> so I'm going to go with that. All right. <laughs> so these are, the, these are the seven angels. And again, just because this is like... It's not in scripture, but it's quote-unquote what's going on in theology at that time. That's why most commentators take it to be. Now, Brighton doesn't like that, and Brighton doesn't take it that way. He puts together a, another framework. And so I, I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong. I honestly don't know. I'm kind of agnostic when it comes to these things. Why? Because I can be. There's too many things that we have to be decisive about. But if I don't have to be decisive, why would I be? I'll just leave it in God's hands and say, I don't know. But here's Brighton's take. Brighton's take is that these... Um, I want to make sure I get all his pieces here. Yeah, these seven angels are really, their identity is contained within the book of uh, Revelation so that the seven angels of the seven churches, he sees them as sent to the churches. These are the seven angels who are also the trumpet angels. And then when we see the censor angels, these are the same seven censor angels. Okay, so he's going to say, I don't, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put forward that these are the seven angels of Enoch. I'm going to put forward that these are the seven angels of uh, the churches, the trumpets, and the censers. Okay? So those are kind of the alternatives you have for what it's worth. But that pesky article, the, that's the thing. You know, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be talking about any of this. Okay, so, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, when you're thinking trumpets, don't think of the little brass things that you're, you know, 
third graders play, and it uh, drives you nuts all night. Um, think of like one tone, right? Think of like think of maybe even a horn or a ram's horn, or th- you're thinking of one tone, and you're thinking of um, a signal, like a like a signal or a call to battle or to worship or something like that. Okay, so that's that's the picture we want to have when we have the the trumpet. All right. And another angel, uh, excuse me, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. All right, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Here is an eighth angel, an eighth angel. And he was given much incense, at which point in time all the Lutherans left the, left the heavenly realm because they're allergic to incense. He was, uh, he was given not just incense, but much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Remember the psalm, let my prayer rise before you as incense? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, it just popped into my mind. I, I recently read an argument that if you continue with Psalm 22 at about the time that Jesus prays, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You just continue through the songs, uh, through the Psalms. Um, the thought is that Jesus was praying the Psalms silently, and at key points spoke. Um, but this 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 Psalm comes into it. Let my prayer rise before you uh, as incense, and of course he is praying to God. The lifting up of my hands, his hands are outstretched as the evening sacrifice. Remember three o'clock, and it's dark. Fulfilled in Christ. Okay, so the seven angels who stand before God, there's an eighth angel. He's got much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now, we think that this is the same altar that the, um, that the martyrs of the fifth seal are under. This, we assume that this is the only um, altar in heaven the Holocaust offer, uh, altar or that which is for the atonement of sin is put away. It's fulfilled in the cross. Verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Absolutely beautiful. So prayers ascending, sweet smelling. When we pray, God receives it as incense and indeed with heavenly incense. Verse 5, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, we're running out of time. I'll make just a couple comments here. Um, prayers are ascending, and then fire descends. So in this, in this twofold action, you've got this beautiful visual theology of God loving those who are his and receiving their prayers, God despising and punishing those who have rejected him. But even then, that as we're going to see, the casting down of this bowl of fire along with the trumpets aren't just wrath, but it's wrath with a purpose. And that purpose is repent before it's too late. Right? So prayers ascend, fire descends. Um, the language here, the grammar is here such that this is a continual action, which, again, kind of visualizes in your mind. As the angel starts to pour the fire, 
each of the seven trumpets blow, and by the time the last trumpet blows, that's when the last bit of fire falls. The language of fire falling and coming down to earth, coupled with the language of peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes, lightning, and an earthquake, all reminds us of Sinai. That's the imagery and language used for Sinai. So one can see here a type of the law, that's true, um, but what's more in view are the plagues, the ten plagues that befell Egypt leading up to Sinai. So we're going to see that as the angels blow their trumpets, what comes are plagues, and those plagues are going to be reminiscent of the plagues that befell Egypt before the salvation of God's people. That is so important. I hope I remember this next week. Because that, that couches all that comes next as the deliverance of God's people. Just as the plagues befell the Egyptians, God's people were like, I mean, in retrospect, God's people were like, this is our freedom. This is our exodus. So too, when the plagues of these trumpet angels befall the earth, our reaction as Christians ought to be, this is our salvation. This is our exodus. We are going to the promised land. All right, that's it for today. The Lord be with you.